feel like Donald Trump walking up here. That's what I was going for, at least. I don't know if I got there or not. Leslie and I, uh, we, we watched some of that Celebrity Apprentice. It's, it's mad. Uh, but uh, I was just looking for a reason to play that song. And this Sunday fits. I bet you'll never guess what we're going to talk about this morning. Money, 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 money. That's right. Several years ago, CNN carried a story about a 62-year-old man who was living in France who was having terrible stomach problems. So one evening, he was rushed to the emergency room because his pain had become more than what he could bear. And when they examined him, the doctors initially thought that this man had 12 pounds of tumor, just a mountainous mass in his stomach. And they decided they needed to move quickly. But unfortunately, this man died soon after he was admitted to the hospital. Now this story, though tragic, has a bizarre twist to it. You see, the doctors, they didn't find a tumor at all. Instead, they found 350 coins, which totaled 650 American dollars. The doctors couldn't believe it. And after reading more about this, they found that this man had a rare disorder of swallowing money. He just had this deep-seated desire to take as many coins as he could and consume them. Now, I know what you're thinking this morning. That's the most ridiculous story I've ever heard. I mean, that's bizarre. That's crazy. I cannot relate to that. No, I'll agree with you. It is a bizarre story. Very strange. Let me ask you this question this morning. Do you crave money? Do you desire money so badly that you will do whatever it takes to get your hands on it? Are you breaking your backs, bending over backward, day in, day out, neglecting family, friends, and your church just to make more of it? You see, many of us in here would never physically swallow coins. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? But you know what we would do? Sacrifice our health and our relationships for it. Now you're thinking to yourself this morning, man, Graham's only been here since August and he's already talking about money. That's pretty gutsy. But you know what? When you're committed to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which is what I've committed to do, you don't have the freedom just to skip over less popular topics in the Word of God. You just have to preach what's next in the text. And this morning... Money is next in the text. So that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. And there are times in the near future, I'm sure, that I'm going to be talking about money again. You know why? Because the scriptures have a lot to say about money, don't they? I mean, the scriptures are filled with examples, parables, illustrations, and teachings on money. In fact, 16 of Jesus' 38 parables dealt with money. The New Testament talks more about money than both heaven and hell combined. 
both faith and prayer combined. In fact, there is nothing besides God and the Lord Jesus Christ that the Bible emphasizes more than money. Why is this the case? Why all this talk about money? Because for many of us, money is our God. Money is our object of worship. Now you're thinking to yourself when hearing that, well, I don't know about that, you know? I mean, I'll agree with you. I like money as much as the next person, but I don't know if it's my God. I mean, I wouldn't say it's my object of worship, really. Well, let me ask you this. Do you love money? Do you make sacrifices for it? Do you think it's the answer to all your problems? Are your days spent thinking about it and working for it? And are your days off spent spending it? Is your life controlled by it? Do you think there's security in it? I mean, we don't refer to it as the almighty dollar for nothing, do we? Why do you think many people get so upset when the pastor mentions money? Some will say, well, it's because of all the scandal in the church. You know, pastors are always asking for money because they want to buy nicer suits, bigger homes, fancier cars. And though I'll agree with you, there has been a lot of scandal in the church when it comes to money. I think that's sort of a cop-out. I really do. I think there is a deeper-seated issue here. And the issue is, money is our God. And you don't go around and mess with people's God, do you? Without them getting upset. In our text for this morning, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Looking at verses 8 through 20, we're continuing our series, Lessons Learned Under the Sun, through Ecclesiastes. And this morning, Solomon's going to help us make sense of money. Now, I want to make something clear before I begin. Many people have taken the scriptures and have misused it, especially when it comes to money. Many have said what the Bible does is it praises the poor and it looks down upon and condemns the rich. But that's not the case in Scripture. With God, it's not your socioeconomic status that He's concerned with. It's your spiritual status. With God, it's not a rich-poor thing. It's a righteous and unrighteous thing. That's what God is concerned with. And that's what Solomon is going to point to this morning when he talks about money. In this text... Solomon is not just, he's not going to just condemn people with money. If so, he'd have to turn it toward himself, right? Because he had more money than most. No, that's not what he does this morning. This morning, he is warning against, in this passage, the abuses of wealth. Those who take the dollar and make it into a deity. That's what Solomon's talking about, and that's what we're going to be talking about. So let's get into it. Let's make sense of money. First, in this passage of Scripture, Solomon warns about the misuse of money. In the first part of this passage, he basically tells us, he's making the point, don't love money. And here's the reasons why. I've got several of them here. Number one, first reason why we shouldn't love money is because loving money brings corruption. Verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor 
and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet higher ones are over them. But this is the gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. Now, this is a difficult passage of Scripture, but Solomon makes a simple point here. And here's the point. Where there is a a love for money and when there is a desire for power, you can count on corruption. And he points specifically to government. And I don't even think I have to give you examples of this, do I? I mean, you know many of them yourself, right? We hear of all the time, daily, we hear about world leaders abusing their power. We hear about the rich getting richer at expense of the poor, the strong taking advantage of the weak. We hear stories of corruption, extortion, perversions of justice that don't take place in spite of government officials, but because of them, right? We hear about this all the time. But not only does money corrupt our government officials and our elected officials, it also corrupts us, doesn't it? As individuals. Tax season just passed, and I was uh, reading a report by the Commerce Department that said close to 40% of people knowingly cheat on their taxes. Why? Because a love of money, it corrupts. It corrupts. Later, earlier, I came out to the, uh, the OJ song, For the Love of Money. Listen to a few of the lyrics from this song that really explain how money corrupts. For the love of money, people will steal from their mother. For the love of money, people will rob their own brother. For the love of money, people will lie. Lord, they will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. For the love of money, for that lean, mean, green, almighty dollar. The love of money brings corruption. Number two, loving money does not bring satisfaction. Here Solomon returns to a familiar theme in this book. Though most agree with the first point, and they know, you know, many examples of how money corrupts, probably an equal number of people disagree with this point. Maybe some of you in here do. Maybe you have that fixed dollar amount in your mind. And you're thinking to yourself, once I get here, once I make this much, then I'll be happy. You know who else used to think that way? Those who now have a lot of money and want more of it. In verse 10, Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's pretty clear cut, right? nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Solomon's main point in verse 10 is this. Money makes a lousy lover. That's his point. And the reason why is because it does not satisfy. Two times in this verse, he uses the verb love. He wants us to understand this kind of affection for money and abundance. It's vanity. It's useless, meaningless, futile, and the reason why, money makes a lousy lover. The more we have, the more we want. Get this, we will never be full if we love money. You know why? Because the enjoyment to be had in money is always outweighed by the desire for more of it. It's true. 
There is no satisfaction in it. It's, it's like drinking salt water. I was reading the other day where the ocean contains seven times more salt than the human body can safely digest. If you were stranded out at sea and you ran out of fresh water and you tried to live off of drinking ocean water, you know what would happen? You would eventually become more and more thirsty and more and more thirsty and you would eventually die of thirst by drinking. Sounds backwards, doesn't it? But it's true. So is it with those who love money. The more we have, the more we want. Once again, the John D. Rockefeller quote, I've shared it with you several times, but it makes Solomon's point exactly. Rockefeller, who had more money than any of us in here, when asked how much is enough, what did he say? Just a little bit more. Because money makes a lousy lover. It does not satisfy. There's another consequence to those who love money. Loving money brings fair weather friends. Number three, loving money brings fair weather friends. Some believe that to be somebody, you have to have money. So they want more and more of it. So that they can have important friends. So that they can rub shoulders with the well-to-do. Solomon says, hey, look, money's going to bring more people, but it's not going to bring true friends. Verse 11. When goods increase, they increase. How about that? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Solomon's point here is simple. As soon as you get more money, you know who else you get? More people coming to help you spend it. Whether it be long-lost relatives, fair-weather friends, whether it be accountants, attorneys, financial advisors, and haven't we seen this in our world? One of the more frustrating things that come along with those who have a lot of wealth is it's very difficult to determine who your true friends are. And by what we've already talked about already, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because people crave money. They'll do whatever they take, whatever it takes to get their hands on it. When I was in elementary school, MC Hammer was one of the top performers in the world. Any MC Hammer fans in here? Don Walker, maybe? Yeah. I saw that hand, Don. I mean, there was nobody bigger than MC Hammer. And there was no performer more popular. Nobody was more wealthy than him. And not only was he wealthy, everybody around him was wealthy. He said at one time he had 200 people on his payroll that he paid directly out of his pocket. Well, like a lot of performers in the late 80s, early 90s, MC Hammer's career was very brief. His popularity faded in less than 10 years. But you still, you think to yourself, man, this guy was making millions upon millions. Surely he has enough to last. That's why many were shocked in 96 when Hammer filed for bankruptcy. MC Hammer broke? How? Because of his lavish lifestyle, of course, but also because fair-weather friends and long-lost relatives came and they took it from him. And in the end, you know what he was left with? A lot of debt and very few friends. That's Solomon's point. Loving money brings people, but it doesn't bring true friends. In verse 12, we find another negative consequence to loving money. 
Number four, loving money does not bring rest. Now, there are a countless number of sayings that come along with, with money and words of wisdom about money that are that a lot that come from the Word of God. One of those I've mentioned already, money makes a lousy lover because it does not satisfy. Another is this, money makes a good servant but a bad master. And that's Solomon's point in this verse. Many in our world are working tirelessly just to make more money in hopes that they're going to reach that certain dollar amount where they find what they're looking for, happiness that lasts long-term under the sun. Solomon says, if it's peace you seek, it won't come from wealth. In fact, the opposite is true. All wealth does is create unrest. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer. I like that. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Here Solomon shows us two types of people. In the one hand, you have the poor but content worker. And on the other hand, you have the wealthy man whose master is his money. He says on the one hand, the content worker works hard all day, doesn't make a lot of money, but is content with his lot in life. And at the end of the day, his head hits the pillow and he sleeps like a baby because he doesn't have all the money, all the worries that come along with having a lot of money. But Solomon says, on the other hand, you have the wealthy man whose master is his money. Solomon says he cannot sleep a wink. You know why? Because of all the troubles that come that relate to him having a lot of wealth, a lot of money. Worries about how to invest his money, about the stock market, issues with the IRS, about who he should hire and fire, about his competitors, his investors, and he cannot sleep a wink. Solomon says this is what happens when money is your master. When you are consumed with money, money will eventually consume you. Though money can buy an expensive bed, a comfortable bed, can't buy a good night's rest. Number five, loving money makes us less charitable. Now I want to remind you here, I'm not talking about every wealthy person because I know a lot of wealthy people who are very charitable. But Solomon here is talking about the habits of those whose master is their money. Many think, once I make that certain dollar amount, six figures, seven figures, then I'm going to care for the little people, you know? Then I'm going to start giving my money away. Solomon says, normally this doesn't happen. Normally this is not the case. Verse 13 and 14. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. Solomon says at the beginning of verse 13, that though the rich, though they have all the money they could ever want, they normally just hoard it away. Rarely do they give it away. Man, isn't that the case today in our world? I mean, statistics have shown that the most charitable people aren't who you think. 
Normally, the wealthiest people aren't the most charitable. It's the, it's the middle to lower class that give a greater amount of money. It's like the story of the poor woman, the poor widow, who enters in to give her offering. Remember that? Jesus is watching. How would you like Jesus watching you give your offering? That'd be intimidating. But he's watching the men give out of their abundance. And this lady comes in and gives a penny's worth. And it causes Christ to say something. He says, this woman right here, she has given more than any of you because she's given all that she had. See, he calls attention to her because by her giving, what she's saying by her giving is, money is my servant and not my master. And Christ praises her for it. Solomon says in this passage, though the wealthy should be more charitable because they have been blessed with an abundance, more often the opposite is true. They are less charitable. And and Solomon refers to this hoarding of wealth as a grievous evil. I mentioned a while back, one of my favorite stories to read around Christmas and movies to watch around Christmas time is the Christmas Carol. And man, Scrooge is this guy, isn't he? He is. Though he had a ton of wealth, he hoarded his money. You remember at the beginning of the story, the two men come to Scrooge and they're trying to get him to give to the poor. And remember what he says? Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? I mean, I've given my money toward that in in taxes. Let them go there. This is the person Solomon is referring to in verse 13. And remember that Dickens refers to Scrooge as a miserable old sinner. And the reason why is because it's a grievous evil to hoard wealth. And on top of that, it doesn't make us happy, does it? Hoarding wealth does not make you happy. Verse 13, this is what Solomon says. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Hoarding money, keeping all you have to yourself, it doesn't make you more happy. Once again, John D. Rockefeller gets at this point. The first, he lived to, to the ripe old age of 98, but the first 53 years of Rockefeller's life were absolutely miserable. And the reason why is because he was extremely paranoid about his wealth. I mean, he was just consumed with worry over losing his money, so he kept it back, and he was miserable because of it. But for whatever reason, in his mid-50s, Rockefeller decides, I'm no longer going to live that way. So he begins to give his money away. And wouldn't you know it, he experiences the best years of his life, the second half of his life, because he learns to make money his servant and not his master. And that's Solomon's point. Those who hoard wealth, it's to their hurt. They're not happy, but more miserable. They just live in paranoia. Like I said, they're unable to sleep. They don't know who their true friends are. They're never satisfied, and they're consumed with worry about all the different things that could potentially happen to cause them to lose their money. Solomon goes on to say another reason, and this is humbling. Let me prepare you. Another reason why hoarding your money away can bring misery is because we're all just one or two tragedies away from losing it all. 
We are. Look at what Solomon says in verse 14. Riches were lost in a bad venture. The point Solomon is making here is that our money is really not ours to begin with, is it? Though we may store it away, it could be gone like that. Unexpected medical bills, stock market crash, theft, bad investments, any one of those things or a combination of a few of those things could suck us dry in a short period of time. Man, that's humbling, isn't it? But you know what it shows us? It's not ours. It's on loan. Everything is on loan. We don't own anything. So hoarding money does nothing but but displeases God, and it it makes us miserable. Wealth isn't meant for hoarding. It's meant for sharing because money is meant to be a servant and not a master. Number six, loving money does not bring security. That kind of goes counter to what we think, right? Many think the more money I have, the more likely it will last and the more secure I'll feel long term. Once again, Solomon says that's not necessarily the case. Verses 15 and 16, he makes the point, the more money you have, hey, the more you're going to leave to someone else. Solomon continues to talk about the rich man here. He says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came and shall take nothing from for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Solomon's point is this. The same way we enter into life, we're going to exit this life. I've made this point before, but hearses were not meant to pull U-Hauls. Right? We are going to... We are going to enter into eternity the same way we entered into into life, with nothing in the way of material possessions. That's Solomon's point. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. But because this is true, and because this is true, Solomon says this, it is a grievous evil. There's that phrase again. A grievous evil to be mastered by money because it has no eternal value. It it matters little for eternity because things are not eternal. So they can't bring us lasting satisfaction. There's no security in it. The more we make, the more we'll leave for someone else. The last point on this passage, number seven. Loving money brings loneliness. In verse 17, Solomon proves once again that money makes a lousy lover. He says... That the one who chooses riches over relationships ends up all alone in this life. Look at his words here. All the rich man's days, he eats in darkness. How sad is that picture? Picturing someone who is all alone in the world with no one to turn to, eating in darkness. Once again, I go back to Scrooge. Remember before he's visited by Marley's ghost, what's he doing? He's sitting in that old, dark, drafty house by candlelight, eating by himself with no one. Though his bank account is full, his house is empty. 
So it is with those who choose riches over relationships. Solomon says this is vanity. This is a grievous evil. So the love of money, it has serious consequences. After giving many negatives about money, however, Solomon ends this chapter with good news, all right? We always love when he does that, right? Like we've said already, Ecclesiastes is filled with with, with the, this bad news, right, about life under the sun because Solomon is giving us a limited, horizontal view of life with God removed. But every now and again in the book, he gives us glimpses of what life is like with God, a vertical perspective, and that's what he does here. And the reason why he does this is because he wants you and me to know this, that though life under the sun is meaningless, futile, and fleeting, listen, life with God is not. Life with God is not. In verses 18 through 20, Solomon transitions by explaining, instead of loving money, what you should be doing is being satisfied in God. And he gives two reasons why. Number one, being satisfied in God makes your labor under the sun enjoyable. Verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for his lot. Here Solomon tells us this, work is really a gift from God. It is. It's not a result of the fall. It's something we did before the fall, and it's something we're going to do long after this life is over. God has given us work for our enjoyment. Now, some of you are saying, okay, then why isn't my job enjoyable? It could be a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons is, is because you're working for the wrong things. You're working for the wrong things. Like we've been talking about, many are bending over backwards, breaking their backs daily just to make a little more money and just to have a more significant title. And the reason why people are doing this is because they think, I'm going to eventually reach that dollar amount or I'm going to eventually have that title by my name that's going to give me happiness that lasts under the sun. But what have we talked about already? There's always a more significant title. There's always more money to be made. And this desire for more and more and more always wins out. It always wins out. Like we've said, wealth, prestige, and other so-called perks that come with success under the sun, they do not satisfy. Solomon says this, get this, we just have a few short days in this life, and then it's over we got to make them count. And the man in verse 17 with a full bank account and an empty house is not what Solomon has in mind. Though our society may call that a success, Scripture says that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. That is a grievous evil. And the reason why is because enjoyment in this life cannot be found in the things of this world. They do not last. We have to look to God for our satisfaction. Number two, being satisfied in God makes you content with what you have while you have it. 
verse 19 and 20. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Once again, Solomon tells us here that not only does God give wealth and possessions, he also gives us the ability to enjoy it. Now, some of you in here are thinking to yourself, yeah, but God hasn't given me wealth. Solomon's talking about those whom God's given wealth. He hasn't given me wealth, therefore I'm not content. Not until I have it. Well, guess what? We've already talked about this before. If you grew up in this country, you're wealthy, right? Everyone in here is close to being in the top 5% of the world's wealth. You may not have what the person on the other side of town has, but you have more than the rest of the world. Therefore, God has blessed you beyond measure. And you need to be thanking him for those riches that, that you have enjoyed. And you need to be content with those blessings that come from him. So be satisfied in God. Be content with him. Be content with what you have while you have it. Let me end by saying this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me ask you, where is your treasure? Think to yourself, where is it? Is it in Christ or is it in stuff? Are you seeking to be satisfied in the gift or the giver of that gift? Are you captivated by creation or are you directing your worship toward the creator? Ask yourself that this morning. You want to experience lasting enjoyment and satisfaction in this life? Here's the key. You have to put your heavenly relationship with God before your earthly desire for wealth. You have to. That's what God requires from each and every one of us. For money to be our servant and for he himself to be our master. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, God, for continuing to seek after things and seek to find happiness and satisfaction in things that that just fall far short of what you intend. Father, forgive us for looking to things to provide us with only what you can provide us with, and that's satisfaction that lasts. Father, I pray that you would do a great work in each and every one of us, Lord, that you would direct our focus toward you, that you would give us a desire to put you before any earthly desire that we have. For God, that's what you require of us, for money to be our servant and for you to be our master. Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning that is not trusting in Christ for salvation and 
and has, has uh, not given over the reins of their life. Maybe they're here and this, this word this morning is cut deep because that's all they know. It's to seek after things to provide happiness. Father, I pray you do a great work in their heart and life this morning and draw their attention to you and that they would come to know you through Christ this morning. And we'll give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, originally we were going to sing this next song that we're going to